0: The world leader in Internet talk radio. radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's couch, here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And there you are, and here I am. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. You're listening today to Dr. Carol's Couch. Thank you for joining me once again. Uh, last week, actually, I wasn't able to be with you at the last minute I uh, with you live, anyway. At the last minute, I had to um, <laughs> I was involved in a trial that kind of took, uh, took over my life, um, where I was an expert witness. And I thought I would share some of that with you um, as part of my general theme today, of where have all the Don Qu- Quixotes gone? Where are people? Where are all the people who used to stand up for things? Why are people not taking responsibility for things? Not even, uh, no less, standing up for things, being a Don Quixote, stand, taking a chance, taking a risk, um, putting yourself out there. But what about even just taking responsibility for the things that people should be taking responsibility for? Instead, and I'm sure you've all seen this more and more in your everyday life, um, people seem to be taking the easy way out. A lot of people who are supposed to be doing something in charge of something, um, having, whether it's in a work situation or a personal situation, and somehow just not getting it done, blaming it on somebody else. And the vast majority of us are suffering um, because of that. And I think that this case that I was involved in in San Francisco was a great example of that. Um, It actually has not yet been, been, the verdict is not yet in, at least to my knowledge, unless something happened today, but um, I'm finished um, testifying and uh, there was more of the case to be put on. This is a case that's been publicized, so I'm not telling tales out of school. (laughs) But um, it's a case of a a man who was um, beaten by the police in San Francisco, a transgendered uh, female to male who was beaten by the police and a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and in fact, He was doing nothing at the time, nothing that deserved uh, such a beating, and uh, and he was, in fact, visiting a friend of his, uh, his domestic partner, who was a um, male-to-female transgender. And um, this man, um, who who was the plaintiff in the case uh, against the city of San Francisco, was bringing medication to the woman, um, his domestic partner, and the security guard decided that she didn't want him to bring up the medication, that uh, there had been a new rule put in that um, people had to come down. This was in a housing project in San Francisco, and there was a new rule that people had to come down to bring their guests up. And this new rule didn't apply, though, to people who were too ill to come down. Or too weak for whatever reason, where it was where it was a, a big imposition. And in fact, uh, the person who he was visiting had a letter uh, from her doctor that the management had, and so she, her guests, weren't supposed to follow the rules. But on this particular day, the security guard decided um, that he was going to follow this rule regardless, and she wouldn't bring up the medication. She just, you know, was was not to be um, negotiated with. And um, she, you know, got into an argument with um, this uh, man. I'll call him Jeremy since, as I said, it has been in the news. Um, And Jeremy went upstairs, and lo and behold, uh, she called the police, and they came, and instead of um, citing him out as he had asked for, they decided they were going to arrest him. Now, Jeremy is um, about five feet, and he weighed about 122 pounds at the time. And here he was no match for these two policemen who came in. One of them especially was tall and burly. And um, there was nothing that was a threat to these policemen in terms of Jeremy's size. He didn't have a weapon. What was a threat, however, was his transgender status. And that was a psychological threat um, to the uh, macho policemen who came in. And um, they overdid, overreacted, overdid the force that they used on Jeremy, really um, roughing him up incredibly, um, beating him up. And um, then uh, took him down to the station, booked him, where he was made fun of uh, because of his transgender status, where his body was examined unnecessarily several times, um, where people laughed at him, at his body, at his transgender status, made fun of him, and uh, made fun of his genitals. And needless to say, this whole incident was both a physical assault on Jeremy and a psychological assault such that um, his already fragile physical and mental states that occurred, you know, over his life um, and at the point of this beating, at the time that the beating took place, he was, you know, he had um, gotten himself together, but he had an awful, awful childhood in Texas. You can imagine what it would be like to grow up transgender in Texas. And he had, he was adopted, and he had all kinds of, um horrible traumas, you know, I kept thinking that if since I deal a lot with scripts, if someone wrote this as a script in Hollywood and tried to sell it um it wouldn't work because um because people would say that that uh that it was not believable, I mean it was just such one trauma after the other abuse. Um, one kind of abuse after the other it was he really had an awful life but he managed to come um, to San Francisco in 1995 and here they there where it was more I don't know where I am yet I wasn't in San Francisco I'm back here in Los Angeles now <laughs> um, it was very dramatic um, in San Francisco where there was more tolerance although obviously not amongst all of the police, um, he had been able to put his life back together to some degree. It was a lot more stable than when he was in Texas, where he had been in psychiatric hospitals. And um, But in in San Francisco, he was able to sort of put his life back together to some degree, and he wasn't hospitalized um, psychiatrically. And he was managing to um, to gradually... Carve out a life for himself until this fateful day when these policemen came and decided um, because of their being threatened that they had to show that they were manly men, and they did so by beating him up now The reason why i'm starting off with this is because it's an example of people not taking responsibility, of course you know um, he he filed a complaint i mean even There was was just a a, a domino effect of events that happened because of this beating where um, he became more psychiatrically ill, of course, from the the trauma, the psychological trauma of it all, and he became much more physically ill as well. And so it caused other things to happen in his life where he was hospitalized, where he was put in jail, where all these things that that, – just came from this beating and how that upset his life and, and put him into a tailspin. And so um, he filed a lawsuit, and of course, um, these police aren't taking responsibility. They're not admitting, well, they, I guess they admitted to some extent what they did, but they lied about a lot. In fact, they weren't even prepared, really. No one seems to have prepared them for trial, uh, prepared them to lie, that is, to have a consistent lie. Um, and they, they told stories that were inconsistent with what they had said before in their depositions, and their depositions were inconsistent, not only with themselves, you know, within the deposition, or now within the trial testimony, but um, well, one of them said something that was the opposite than the, than the other. I mean they, they said several things that just didn 't mesh with what the other person was saying, such as one of them said that uh, the other police officer wasn 't in the apartment where this took place, and then the other police officer came and testified that he was in the apartment so you know these were pretty blatant lies, which hopefully the jury will uh, recognize but you know, of course one, I mean, wouldn't it be nice and refreshing for a change to have people get off there
1: behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Information you need, when you need it,
3: voiceamerica.com. Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Trader's Coach, Robin Dane, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Trader's Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network.
4: Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Make Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the greyhound. Learn about the history of the greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption efforts of the former race dogs. If you own a greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
0: Continuing to be the authority in Internet talk radio, you're listening to voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call cold-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. At least people at voiceamerica.com take responsibility. We had a little technical glitch that put me off the air, and um, my producer um, acknowledged that there were problems with the phone lines. So we don't have these kinds of problems with people not taking responsibility at VoiceAmerica.com, and I feel good about that. As I was saying um, about Jeremy, that it would have been refreshing had uh, the people stepped forward, the police officers who beat him and the police officers who were involved in the uh, booking station in the jail who made fun of him, um, to step forward and acknowledge that, of course, they would have presumably lost their jobs and the city would have lost um, a large amount of money, but I don't know. I don't know how people can, can live with themselves, and somehow more and more people, that was what I, how I started off the show, by saying more and more people are somehow managing to live with themselves, not taking responsibility, and it is affecting all of us. And one of the ways that um, also I've been sort of starting to tally up a list um, of ways that uh, people are not taking responsibility and one of them has to do with um the disparity or this problem that has occurred in increasing numbers. Um oh I'd say in the last ten years it's it's just, you know, become an epidemic, become the norm. And that is, and it's all because of managed care companies and that is um it, which is all because of managed care companies wanting to make more money, and that is their, um, their policy for having psychiatrists um, reimbursing psychiatrists only for doing medication management or reimbursing psychiatrists so poorly um, when they do anything other than medication management, such as, psychotherapy, that it really makes it very difficult for them to go on to do that. Now, I um, I refuse to become part of this trend because, um, and I don't, I mean, in, in order to do that, I can't uh, take, accept managed care insurance from patients, but um uh, I I refuse to, it's it's sort of more of the principle than it is an issue of the money or the, you know, there's so many things connected with uh, insurance companies invading doctors' practices, wanting to know personal information about patients more and more, um, and in in managed care companies in regard to therapy um, or psychiatry and psychology and other mental health professionals, um, they... Some of the companies, most of the companies, have people on staff who you have to um, beg to allow to uh, get more, to have more therapy for your patients. In other words, there are people who haven't even seen the patients, and I'm sure a lot of you have have experienced this yourself. I'm not telling you something new, um, but, or you know someone who's experienced this, um, but but they are now in the process of deciding. People who, you know, they hire um, someone who usually, usually not psychiatrists, although sometimes, um, sometimes there are psychiatrists doing this. Um, and they, without having seen the patient, just based upon what you write down on their forms or what you tell them in a brief interview, they decide how many sessions the patient needs based upon, um, I don't know, based upon how much money the company has or based upon the average of how much, how long it should take for a person with that kind of illness to get well. And, of course, you can't have averages when you're talking about unique people. And i actually I know this because I actually tried it at the very beginning when uh when these things first came into being, and I quickly decided that this was not for me i didn't want anybody else telling me how to treat my patient um because talking about responsibility, they certainly weren't going to be taking responsibility if anything uh went wrong or the fact that the patient would have to leave being partially treated but it wasn't even just that it was just that um that i you know felt a lot more comfortable deciding on my own how much um, treatment people need. Because, of course, I, coming from a psychoanalytic school of thought, believe that people need uh, a lot more therapy. There is no such thing as an instant cure. And you can put people on the right – you can guide people towards the right track in a shorter amount of time. But to actually do the work of of remembering um, one's painful childhood – talking about it, crying about it, screaming about it, letting out all the feelings about it so that one can then not have to carry these around as a burden and go on to um, life in a lighter way, being aware of one's psychological proclivities to see certain things in a certain way because of our childhoods. Um, So I would tend to, you know, I have patients with me for, for years, um, certainly not the six-session 6, six session or 12-session max average that managed care companies give. But um, uh, also now the insurance companies, even, P, even companies like Blue Cross, are getting involved in terms of um, deciding how many, what kinds of medication. This is sort of a new one, so you may not have heard this. I, I have... Uh, seen this already in three patients where I would write a prescription and um, if it was more expensive to give patient a medication in divided doses, you know, where let's say they need 30 milligrams altogether and, and I want them to take 10 milligrams in the morning and 20 milligrams at night because, let's say, a side effect of the medication could be sleepiness. Well, since it's cheaper to have one 30 milligram pill rather than um, three 10-milligram pills that could be divided, or, um, or one 10-milligram and one 20-milligram, you know, it's more expensive the, generally than the greater number of pills that you need of anything, um, they decide to re-prescribe it a different way. Or, even worse, they, just, they prescribe the maximum dose that a person should have. And I, I mean, there, I mean, this is just—I can't wait for um, a lawsuit to happen about this because this is just, this is, you know, insurance companies practicing medicine. How could they possibly know how many milligrams of anything a patient needs? This is, this is really—it's—it's um, it's coming about very quietly, but this is a very dangerous trend. And of course, it's also trying to save money so that they could make more profit. Um this I have been seeing taking note of numerous occasions where um, where and I wish I had started doing this a while ago because it 's really mounting up, um, but numerous situations where this division of a psychiatrist prescribing the medication i mean generally what happens um, is that a psychiatrist will see somebody for maybe a half an hour. Once a month and and talk about medication issues, as they put it, um, and then a psychologist or social worker or a marriage and family counselor will see the patient for therapy like forty five minutes a week. Well, that is not the way to do things. Um, that is not the ideal treatment venue. I do not, as I've mentioned before on this show i I will not see patients just for medication because there is no way that somebody uh, can see a patient for a half an hour a month and ask about side effects um, and know whether you're giving the patient the right medication. It's, you have to know about that patient's life, you have to know about changes, you have to know the kinds of things that you know in the 45 minutes of weekly therapy. So, just to give you some examples of how dangerous this is, some recent examples, um, there was a um, there was a, a young man who was um, being seen by a psychiatrist for medication and a i 'm um, not sure I think it was an MSCC or social worker i don 't remember for therapy and um, the psychiatrist was just asking about the medication issues for the most part actually, he did a little more than that, but he didn 't see him for forty five minutes a week um, and the the other therapist was seeing him in therapy, and they would chat every once in a while, mainly when the non-psychiatrist was feeling a little overwhelmed uh, and had a question or two. But it turns out that the, this, this young man, he was 17, committed suicide. And um, the psychiatrist, of course, the family, of course, you know what happens when your child commits suicide? Do you take responsibility for that as a parent? No, blame the psychiatrist, blame the other therapist, blame everybody, but don't take responsibility for how desperately unhappy this young man was. Um, I mean, it's really, um, it was really uh, fairly um, absurd, and I can't really, of course, divulge the intimate details of that, because that isn't a public case (laughs) at this point. Um, Maybe more on that later, but... For for now, my point is that the young man had told his non-psychiatrist therapist, um, amongst other things, right before he did commit suicide, he talked to him about Sylvia Plath and the bell jar. Well, I don't know if that therapist, how much that therapist knew about Sylvia Plath and the bell jar. But Sylvia Plath um, was an author who committed suicide. And wrote the Bell Jar, and um, certainly that should have been a red flag um, that um, that this man was preoccupied with suicidal thoughts. Uh, because a lot of times, if you ask somebody if they're thinking about suicide, they're not necessarily honest with you, or not necessarily even honest with, your, with themselves and um, you have to ask more questions, and certainly when you see red flags, like somebody talking about Sylvia Plath from the bell jar, that would be a biggie. But um, this did not apparently ring any bells for this therapist, and the therapist did not tell the psychiatrist about it. And um, the end result was that this young man was able to successfully commit suicide, of course. Really, it had a lot to do with things that negligence on their on his parents' part. But again, this is all um, I feel comfortable talking about in regard to this. But my point is that this this um, system of having one person um, be responsible for the medication. Of course, the reason why they do that is because psychiatrists uh, such as myself, who have more years of of education. Um, than psychologists or other therapists of course charge more and so for the managed care or other insurance companies um, it, is more, it is more economical for them to pay for less time by a psychiatrist but it is certainly not more economical for the patients. and these kinds of tragedies that I just mentioned um, are the result. So stay tuned and while I talk about more in- and actually, the reason for this isn't to uh, make you as depressed or frustrated with the whole thing as um, I often feel, but um, there is the main point is to sort of make you aware of this and to make you realize that you're not going crazy. This is the way the world is, and it doesn't make any sense. You're not the only one who's trying to struggle with these, these things that are not making sense as we walk around every day and wonder why. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com. and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
1: Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times, www.drcarol.com.
2: Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Trust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the Crust zone with me, Dr. Pat Fitzbillage, and get ready to do some serious crust busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on voiceamerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific time for Crust Busting Your Way to an Awesome Life.
1: Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time here on voiceamerica.com.
0: Cutting edge, challenging, stimulating. You're listening to voiceamerica.com.
2: When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard's Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard's Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard's Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network.
0: Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about people not taking responsibility but rather taking the easy way out. And where have all the Don Quixotes gone? And actually those two things are related in the sense that um, as more people don't take responsibility there is more need for people to be Don Quixote. In other words, to uh, try to right the wrongs of the world. And yet, there seems to be an increase in fear. Where are, it used to be that more people would stick their neck out and um, stand up for what they thought was right or against what they thought was wrong. And um, there seems to be an increase in fear that seems to be stopping people. I mean, my faithful listeners will know that I talked about Terry Schiavo for weeks, and did a lot uh, in terms of trying to to get um, the to stop the feeding tube from being pulled um, by doing a lot of media interviews and helping the family and um, was supposed to testify as an expert witness um, at the end for the family but in terms of saying that uh, that uh, Michael schiavo um, According to um, a reasonable degree of medical certainty fit the profile of a wife abuser and that he should be investigated since they based all of their decisions on what to do with the feeding tube on his say so on his uh, claim that she um, didn 't want wouldn 't have wanted to live like this it 's interesting because I think as the as it went as time went on and people saw. Him more, and his actions more, such as um, you know not allowing the family in to see her at times at the end, and uh, just various uh, wanting to take wanting her to be cremated, which of course, as I said, might well have been to cover up uh, finding out that he could well have had something to do with her. Um, being in that state to begin with, and then what, burying her ashes, as if that wasn't enough, cremating her, burying her ashes in his family's plot in Pennsylvania. I mean, really cruel, um, heartless uh, wounds that he inflicted upon the family. So I think people began to see him in a different light, but by then it was a bit too late. And I was kind of surprised at how many people said to me, you know, most of the emails that I got were very positive and that's. but it was that's very brave of you. Thank you so much um, for doing that. Um, there were a few nasty ones, but um, for the most part it was really positive. And um, so many people who said, you know, that, that's so brave, that's so courageous. We would never do that. How, how do you do that? And it just got me thinking about this whole topic. It seems to me that that over the years um, there seem to be fewer and fewer people who are willing to take stands, I mean, unless they're running for public office or something, um, but just to take stands with no remuneration to themselves, no benefit, no, no reason other than they think they believe that something is really wrong um, and want it to stop, or that they believe that something is really right and want to make sure that that is what happens. And that's very... Um, very disappointing to me and which is why I'm talking about it today because I would like I would like people to think about this more. I mean, think about the last ten years, the last twenty years, but even going back further. Uh it just there were more people who were willing to come forward and say things that might not have been popular. But and willing to do more protests. I mean, even the people who were standing outside of Terry Shiva's room—they—they were, you know, it was incredible that they kept coming back for so many days. But, but after after some of them, including children, got arrested, there wasn't really nobody was storming the gates to um, to try to bring her food or water. And and certainly, of course, you know, more than. I mean, certainly, more to blame is the um, would be Governor Bush and, and uh, the, the people in the government who, and, in, and the judges who were cowards who wouldn't come forward to do what they really knew in their heart was the right thing. And um, as I'm sure will become more apparent in the months or years to come, um, there were selfish, mostly greedy, monetary. <laughs> Profit reasons for why Judge Greer made the decisions that he did and why these people who supported him um, went along with it, but you know it would have been it would have been nice to have more people um, uh, well particularly people who were in positions to such as Governor Bush to have actually um, commandeered uh, the National Guard for example, to go in and take her, which apparently at least um uh, according to the family, and um, some lawyers felt that, the, that he did have the right to do. And yet, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with when they realized that more of the public, in, in public surveys, were voting against putting back her feeding tube, and that was primarily because these people didn't know the whole story. But when the politicians saw that it wasn't a politically favorable um, thing to do, then all of a sudden they backed off. Cowards, just total cowards. And so um, why are people, not just government officials, but why are some everyday people who would more often have taken stands not doing it as much? And um, I don't know that I have all the answers to this. Some of my thoughts are... Uh, 9/11 which of course um, which of course as I said right from the start was going to be affecting us and was affecting us more than people wanted to admit I mean beyond the the first uh, 30 or 60 days um, I think that it has cowed people to some extent made people more frightened um, not just of terrorism but of of somehow you know, Because we believed, we in America believed, that these kinds of things um, couldn't happen here, when it did happen here, I think it has thrown a lot of Americans into a tailspin. I mean, not just Americans, actually, unfortunately, a lot of people all over the world. And um, made people, broke people's complacency, broke people's sense of safety, and um, cause them to think that anything could happen, that they're not safe. And so why stick your neck out for some cause that's not going to directly benefit you when things are scary and dangerous already? Um, And I'll tell you why, why one should. And that's because I don't think that one is living a full life or a whole life or certainly not a passionate life. Um, if you live in fear and live always thinking about doing the safe thing or thinking about doing what's good for you, only what's good for you. I mean, of course, we have to take care of ourselves, and yes, we should be thinking about you know what's good and what's bad for us. But sometimes we have to stay, we have to step out of this um, sort of narcissistic thinking and and go beyond that to what is best for the world and um i you know there was an article that i was reading recently about um how there has been a decrease in the number of what they called patriot groups you know uh like the groups that that caused the Oklahoma City bombing and it's that anniversary now um and i'm not saying that that's a bad thing <laughs> i mean uh, in the sense that we you know terrorist groups um, uh, within the United States, you know um, born and bred in the United States are still terrorist groups, and I'm not saying that we should encourage any kind of violence or terrorism but but um it kind of goes along with the fact that that people are just kind of not. People are trying to stay safe and not sticking their necks out regardless whether they have a cause that um, most of us would think is a good cause or causes that are very destructive. It just seems to be going along with this general pattern of um, not wanting to stick your neck out because life or the world is scarier than you really thought it was to begin with, and so you can't stick your neck out because then you're taking even more of a risk. And I, you know, I'm not trying to encourage you to um, to engage in all kinds of risky behavior. In fact, um, that's that's been a result of this denial that people are in after 9-11, denial of the fact that it did have and continues to have a psychological impact upon us. I mean, you know, people seem to be drinking more and and eating more and doing all kinds of self-destructive behaviors, um, not linking it to 9-11 or the threat, the continuing threat of terrorism. And uh, as long as you're not aware of what's going on, that's when you're in the most danger. And that's what I try to do on Dr. Carroll's couch is to try to make you aware of all of these things that I'm talking about so that you can then, um, first of all, feel that you're not the only one. Or not, it's not you who's going crazy. Or maybe you are going crazy, but it's not you. It's, it's because the world is driving you there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. that it's not, um, That you're not alone in thinking that the world is becoming a crazier place. And, um, but there are so many, because it's becoming a crazier place and because people are um, doing some extreme behaviors under all this stress, um, you need to recognize what's what, but you still need to stand up for things that are wrong. And there seem to be an increase of things that are wrong after 9-11. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host on voiceamerica.com.
0: Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. Voiceamerica.com.
1: Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times, www.drcarol.com. Go beyond success
3: and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, This is voiceamerica.com.
0: Depend on it.
4: Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Make Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the greyhound. Learn about the history of the greyhounds, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption efforts of the former race dog. If you own a greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
0: The world leader in Internet talk, radio. Internet talk radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carroll, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: the quality of your life by decreasing the chances of disease and disability. And the mother of the boy who has now been on the stand for a number of days, not doing particularly well, although that isn't a surprise, um, not taking responsibility for her having put her children in that situation because of her own needs. Um, she was rather down and out, not just financially, but you know, not really... Getting attention. Um, she had a husband who was abusive towards her. She, she had a son who had cancer. Um, you know, she was in a bad way, and of course, very thirsty for um, the kinds of attention and money and um, lavish gifts that Michael Jackson could provide. But wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be refreshing? she got on the stand and, and uh, started off by saying, "I take responsibility for um, putting my children in harm's way," I mean that wouldn't have let him off the hook if he molested her son. He still molested her son, but um, you know it's it's an incredibly. I don't, have you ever have you ever done that? I mean, I'm sure you must have had times when, <laughs> I'm sure you all have had occasions when you did something and you realized afterwards that that was stupid or um, or you wish you hadn't done it or by, it was an accident and you made some kind of mistake. Um, and isn't it freeing to just say, it's almost like it's defiant. You know, It feels like, um, <laughs> like you're being almost defiant to, to admit it. But it just is a wonderfully freeing thing to say, um, that's my fault or I, I made a mistake um, it, it's just, I mean, because it kind of leaves the other person They have nothing to say <laughs> Once you admit that it's your fault It's like, uh, you know, they, they, can't, they can't yell at you They can't, I mean, they can But it's, it's, they're, they're usually so caught off guard That they just stand there And there isn't really m- much further to go from there um, Once you admit it now I'm not suggesting that you admit it if it wasn't your fault, but it is just try it the next time something happens that could be even vaguely your fault. Just try this and notice the incredibly, well first of all, the look of consternation on the other person's face and then the incredibly freeing feeling that you That you have—it's almost giddy. It's kind of like you feel like a kid in school, you know. Who, I mean, we never wanted to admit that something was our fault in school when the teacher would ask, "Did you do that, Johnny?" (laughs) But um, it's—it's a wonderful thing to do, um, and—and I wish more people would do it. Um, But this—this whole—the current the current status of the MJ trial, the Michael Jackson trial, um, where, where, of course, where everybody's credibility, of course, is always, uh, the jury is always watching that in any trial. You know, it's almost, it is more important most times even in what the person actually says because, the jury is looking to decide whether the person is telling the truth based upon how credible they feel that the witness is. So you could be saying something totally um, right, and yet if for some reason you have given the jury a reason to doubt your credibility, it doesn't matter that what you're saying is 100% accurate. And what's sad, what I'm concerned about in this trial, is that because the mother's credibility has been damaged as well. It should. Um, that really is irrelevant in terms of what happened to her son. It's more his testimony and his siblings' testimony that um, that should count for that. But I, I'm just concerned that because she's his mother, and I don't think the jury is liking her very much. Um, I don't know that she. You know, I don't know that I would like her very much if I was in the jury and, and watched her testify. Um, uh, you know, I just hope that this, doesn't, that this doesn't backfire or this, well, backfire. They didn't really have a choice about putting her on, but I just hope that this doesn't damage uh, her son's case too much so that the jury feels that it didn't happen because the mother is a, a wacko, like what they call Michael, wacko jacko. But that's left to be seen. Um, It's also talking about taking responsibility. It's also kind of sad uh, that Macaulay Culkin and Corey Feldman are not taking the stand or have not at least taken the stand. And if they do take the stand, it'll be, at this point, it seems like it would be on the side of the defense. Um, But they, I mean, perhaps, you know, I, I really don't know about this, but Certainly um, other people have stated already that they have observed them being at Neverland, um, being molested, and yet they are denying it. And of course, you know, you wonder, well, why are they denying it and why won't they come forward and testify about their own experience? Corey Feldman did do an interview with Martin Bashir, but um, he it was a rather, you know, half... (laughs) Halfway helpful um, interview in the sense that he could see how Michael could do that, but he denied that Michael ever did anything like that with him. And, you know, surely Macaulay Culkin, Corey Feldman are actors. They don't want to see their careers damaged. Perhaps they, just like so many other people who have been abused, molested, um, have blocked it out, have oppressed the memory themselves. Perhaps the memory hasn't come back yet to them. Um But certainly, if it has i it would be so valuable uh if they would come forward and speak about it i mean it, it's already out you know in a way, they look worse because other people have already taken the stand and testified about uh, the fact that they were molested, and it, it really looks worse for them um, to not step up to the plate or to the witness stand and uh, admit it or tell what actually happened, which might be worse, or worse, well, it might be worse, or might be not as bad as what um, the people have already testified to. So why, what is the solution to all of this, you know, besides, first of all, recognizing the problem, which is what I hope I helped you do today, but it's also um, starting with oneself. Taking responsibility oneself uh, for big and little things, um the punishment really isn't that bad. you know we all walk around with this with this sort of an overinflated fear of punishment for for being bad uh, because of what happened to us as children. if your parents um you know uh, beat you with a belt or if they um Put you in a corner, and were very made you, were very harsh to you, um, or you know, if the punishment, whether it was physical or emotional, screaming at you, whatever they did to punish you, when uh, you did something wrong, we carry around those memories, and um, have this feeling that if we admit to having done something wrong that we're going to be overwhelmed by a punishment. I mean, those of us who weren't punished as harshly as the others don't have quite as much an overwhelming feeling or fear of that. But those who, the more harshly you were punished, the more you carry around this feeling that in some way, shape, or form, it's going to come down on you again if you if you are found out for having done something wrong. Um, but it really isn't as bad as we remember it because we're not little kids with big parents meeting out the punishment. We're now adults who um, can find uh, solutions to the problem. And nobody's going <laughs> to... Nobody, if you're an adult, there isn't going to be anybody taking you into the corner and hitting you with a strap unless, of course... You want them to, and we won't go there today um, there's uh there are other solutions um you people who who are in your life who seem to have changed and become uh the people that we see in invasion of the body snatchers. I love that movie it's it was such uh that movie really stood out when I was a child, and um I I, you know, it was almost, it was predictable of, I mean, it was scary then, but it was predictable of what was happening, or predictive, um, it predicted the things that we are seeing currently and in the future, where in the face of uh, terrorism, um, aliens, so to speak, um, that people are becoming colder to each other. And we can't let that happen. If those kinds of people are in your life, you need to get rid of them. And certainly, you need to not become that way yourself. So, the moral of the story today is take responsibility. It's fun just to see the face on other people. And don't be afraid of being a Don Quixote. That is incredibly rewarding as well. Although, for example, I wasn't able to save Terry Schiavo's life, something that still makes me feel very sad, I do feel good about all the efforts that I put in to try, and I would encourage you to find things that you care about and do the same. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. If you'd like to check out my website, it's the spelling of Carol is with an E, so it's C-R-C-A-R-O-L-E.com, drcarol.com. See you again next Tuesday.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.